It appears BTK is communicating again. Cake TV receiving another mysterious message. We will, of course, bring you any new developments as they happen and keep it on Cake for complete live team. In just more than a week, another possible communication from BTK arrives here at our studios. The communications are getting more frequent and a lot more personal. The BTK murder mystery may be nearing an end. That's right. Wichita police and city leaders confirming today that a person of interest taken in for questioning yesterday is in fact BTK. Long before BTK terrorized Wichita communities, a young Dennis Raider was cutting out what he would call slick ads, female figures from magazines that he would draw roped and gagged and paste on index cards. Like other boys carried their favorite baseball cards, Raider kept his slick ads with him, his fantasies, burning holes in his pockets until the time would come for him to bind, torture, and kill in the flesh. It was the year of 1974, and Dennis Raider was living a double life, while the family man was hanging porch swings, building tree houses, watching his daughter crawl up her favorite climbing tree, and planting flowers along the driveway. BTK was having what he called motel parties. Alone and in a motel room, Raider would tie his own wrists and ankles, cover his head with a bag, and fantasize about things he found arousing. Things like being spanked as a child, or the image of a helpless woman bound and gagged. But his own personal motel parties weren't enough. With the memory of the Otero murders still fresh in his mind, Raider's desires grew, and soon, they would be too much for him to control. Between the spring of 1974 and winter of 1977, Raider killed three more women, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vian Relford, and Nancy Fox. Bright's brother would survive the attack. In April of 1974, Raider waited in the home the siblings shared. The phone line had been cut. Catherine was bound with a cord and stabbed several times in the abdomen before being strangled. Yet, it was on his second attack BTK slipped up as he slipped his hands around Kevin Bright's neck, not squeezing long and hard enough. Neither strangulation or the two gunshots to the head had killed him. I should warn that the following may disturb some listeners. All right, Mr. Raider, we will now turn to count five. In that count, it is claimed that on or about the 4th day of April 1974 in Sedgwick County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed Catherine Bright maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation and stabbing, inflicting injuries from which she did die on April 4th, 1974. Can you tell me what occurred on that day? Well, uh, the, uh, I don't know how to exactly say that. I had many, what I call them projects. They were different people in the town that I followed, watched. Uh, Kathleen Bright was one of the next targets, I guess, as I would indicate. How did you select her? Uh, just driving by one day, and I saw her go in the house with somebody else, and I thought that's a possibility. There was many, many places in the area. College Hill, they're all over Wichita, but anyway, that's, it just was basically a selection process, work toward it. If it didn't work, i just move on to something else. But in the, in the, my kind of person, a stocking and scrolling, you go through the uh, trolling stage and then a stocking stage. She was in the stocking stage when this happened. Um, all right, sir, so you identified Catherine Bright as a potential victim. Yes, sir. What did you do here in Central County then? Pardon? What did you do then here in Central County? Uh, on this particular day, yes. uh, I broke into the house and waited for her to come home. How did you break into the house? Uh, through the back door on the east side. 
All right, and you waited for her to come home. Where yes, did sir. you wait? Uh, in the house there, probably close to the bedroom. I walked through the house and uh, kind of figured out where I'd be if they came through. All right. What happened then? Uh, she and uh, Kevin uh, Bright came in. Uh, I wasn't expecting him to be there. Uh, and come find out, I guess they were related. Uh, that time I uh, approached them and told them I was wanted in California. Uh, I needed some car. Ba basically the same thing that I told the Turtles. Uh, kind of ease of making feel better and proceeded to I think I had him tie I think I had him tie her up first and then I tied him up or vice versa I don't remember right now, now let, let me ask you indicated that you had some uh, items to tie these people with did you bring these items both the Oteros and to this location? The Oteros I did uh, I'm not really sure on the brights uh, there was some I, when I am working with the police, there was some controversy on that. Probably more likely I did, but uh, if if I had brought my stuff and used my stuff, uh, Kevin would probably be dead today. Right. I'm not bragging on that. It's just a matter of fact. It's the bonds I've uh, tied him up with that he broke them. So, and that, uh, All right. and maybe same way with uh, same way with Catherine. It was it got out of got out of hand. All right, now you indicated that you believe you had Kevin tie Catherine up. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened then. Okay. I moved, uh, well, after, I really can't remember, Judge, whether I had her tie him up or she tied him up. But anyway, I moved, basically I moved her to another bedroom, and he was already secure there by the bed. Uh, tied his feet to the uh, bedpost, at the bottom of the bedpost, so he couldn't run. Uh, kind of tied her in the other bedroom, and then I came back to strangle him. And at that time, we had a fight. Were you armed with a handgun at that time? Also? Yes, I had a handgun. What happened when you I came back? I actually had two handguns. Uh, well, when I started strangling, the, either the parent uh, broke or he broke his bonds, and he jumped up real quick like. I pulled my gun and quickly shot him. I hit him in the head. He fell over. Uh, I could see the blood, and as far as I concerned, you know, I thought he was down and uh, was out, and then went and uh, started to strangle Catherine. Uh, and uh, then we started fighting because uh, bonds weren't very good, and so back and forth we fought. Uh, you and Catherine? Yeah, we fought. Uh, and I got the best of her, and I thought she was going down, and then I could hear some movement in the other room. So I went back, and Kevin. No, no. I thought she was going down, and I went back to the other bedroom where Kevin was at, and I tried to re-strangle him at that time, and he jumped up, and we fought, and, uh, and he about, at that time, about shot me because he got the other uh, pistol that was in my shoulder here. I had my magnum in my shoulder, so, and a really holster. Hmm? Did you have it in the shoulder holster? Yes, and I had the magnum in the shoulder holster. The other one was a twenty-two, and we fought. At that point in time, and uh, I thought it was going to go off, I jammed the gun, stuck my finger in, the, in there, jammed it. And uh, I think he thought that was the only gun I had because once I either bit his finger or hit him or something got away, and I used the 22 and shot him one more time. And I thought he was down for good at that time. All right, so you shot him a second time. Yes, sir. What happened then? Uh, went back to uh, uh, finish the job on Catherine, and uh, she was fighting. And at, at that point in time, I've been fighting her. I just, and then I heard some. I don't know whether I uh, 
was loose, basically losing control. The uh, strangulation wasn't working on her, and I uh, used a knife on her. Let's take a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. You say you used a knife on her. What did you do with the knife? I stabbed her. She said you stabbed two or three times, uh, either here or here. Maybe two back here and one here, or maybe just two times back here. You were pointing to your lower back and your... your yeah, underneath the ribs. And your lower abdomen. Yeah, underneath the ribs, up, up under the ribs. So after you stabbed her, what happened? Uh, actually, I think at that point in time, well, it was a total mess. I didn't have control on it. Uh, she was bleeding. Uh, she went down. Uh, I think I just went back to check on Kevin, or at that basically same time I heard him escape. It could be one of the two. But all of a sudden, the front door of the house was open, and he was gone. And uh, or, Oh, I'll tell you what I thought. I thought the police were coming at that time. I heard the door open. I thought, no, that's it. And I stepped out there, and he I could see him running down the street. So I quickly cleaned up everything that I could and left. All right. Now, Mr. Rader, you indicated that at the Oteros you did not have a mask on. Did you have a mask on at the Brights? No. No, I didn't. Uh-huh. All right. So what happened then? Uh, I tried. To, I had already had the keys to the cars, uh, and I thought I had the right key to the right car. I ran out to their car. And I think it was a pickup out there, and I tried it. Didn't work. And uh, at that point in time, I was he was gone, running down the street. I thought, well, I'm in trouble. So I tried it. Didn't work. So I just took off, ran, and went down, went east, and then worked back toward the WSU campus where my car was parked. All right, so you had parked your car at the Wichita State University yes, campus? Yes, campus, uh-huh. How far away were, uh, was the Bright's residence? Oh, I parked, uh, was that 13th? And they're, uh, let's see, they're, they were on 13th. Was it 17th? Yeah. Uh, I, was pretty, I was just about one block south of 17th where the car was. Uh, oh. there, there's a park there. I parked by that park. And then I walked to 13th or to the Bright's residence. So I basically ran back. All right, so you were able to get to your car and get away. Yes, sir. When Nancy Fox, a 25-year-old woman, was killed on December 8, 1977, Raider made a call to the police from a payphone and reported the murder at the duplex. Thank you. Yes, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing. Nancy Fox. I'm sorry, sir, I can't understand you. What is your address? 843 South Pershing. That's correct. When the authorities arrived at the address, they found a broken window, cut phone lines, and the body of Nancy Fox, tied up and strangled with a nylon stocking. While Dennis Rader was feeding the monster's need to bind, torture, and kill, BTK's hunger for the spotlight grew harder to satisfy. In early 1978, Rader sent an envelope postmarked January 31st to the Wichita Eagle. It contained a poem, printed with a child's rubber stamping set. It started out, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, wilt thou be mine? The bizarre letter was referring to Shirley Van Relford. After receiving no reaction again from the newspaper, 
Raider was now more intent than ever on gaining the attention of the press. And so, he tried another news media outlet, one that would give his inner monster a public name, and one he would continue to communicate with often. Less than a month later, on February 10th, Raider sent a letter to television station Cake in Wichita, a letter that claimed responsibility for the murders of Oteros, Bright, Vian Relford, and Fox. The letter also suggested names for himself, warnings of more bodies, and the rambling demands of a serial killer begging for recognition. A little paragraph in the newspaper would have been enough, he reasoned. A poem was also enclosed titled, Oh, Death to Nancy, a parody of the lyrics to the American folk song, Oh, Death. Like the depraved who came before him, Raider claimed to be driven by Factor X, which he characterized as a supernatural element that also motivated the likes of Jack the Ripper, Son of Sam, and the Hillside Stranglers. The authorities had not publicized BTK's first letter in 1974, thinking it was in the best interest of the investigation. But now, four years later and realizing their strategy wasn't working, Police Chief Richard Lamunion announced the serial killers at large and has threatened to strike again. And... He did on April 27, 1985, and he was bold. BTK struck right down the street from his very own home. Marine Hedge was recently widowed and living alone in a three-bedroom bungalow just a few houses away from the Raiders. The family, Raiders' daughter would later recall, would often pass by the elderly lady and greet her with a friendly wave as they walked down the street. Yet, as Dennis Raider, the family man, was waving at Marine Hedge, BTK, the serial killer, was stalking his next project. By now, BTK had already established a pattern for taking responsibility for his murders. But, this time, BTK didn't brag about the killing of Maureen Hedge, later admitting the elderly neighbor was just too tempting to resist, yet her murder was just too close to home for him to claim. It wouldn't be until 10 days after she was abducted that the 50-year-old's corpse would be found dumped in a ditch covered with brush. BTK had called his plan Project Cookie. I should warn that the following may disturb some listeners. It is claimed that you unlawfully killed a human being, Marine Hedge, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which Marine Hedge did die on April 27, 1985. Can you tell me what occurred on that day? Mm. Well, actually, uh, kind of like the others, uh, she was chosen. I went through the different phases, uh, stalking phase, and since she lived down the street from me, I could watch the coming and going quite easily. Uh, on that particular day, I, uh, uh, I uh, had a, uh, a other commitment. I came back from that commitment, parked my car over at uh, Woodlawn and 21st Street uh, at Bowling Alley there at that time. Uh, before that, I dressed until I had some other clothes on, changed clothes. I went to the bowling alley, uh, went in there, uh, the pretense of bowling, called a taxi, had a taxi take me out to Park City. Uh, I had my kit with me as a bowling bag. Right, that was Park City in Sedgwick County, yes, Kansas? Yes, uh -huh. mm -hmm. All right, you had the taxi take you to Park City. What happened then? Uh, there I asked, I, I uh, pretended that I was a little uh, drunk. I just, took, I just took some beer and forced it around my mouth and... The guy could probably smell the alcohol on me. I asked, told him to let me out so I could get some fresh air, and I walked from where the taxi let me off over to her house. All right, where does she live? Uh, 62, 
what North Independence. All right. When you walked over there, what happened next? Well, as before, I was going to have uh, sexual fantasies, so I brought my hit kit, uh, and uh, lo and behold, her car was there. I thought, gee, she's not supposed to be home. So I very carefully snuck into the house, kind of like a cat burglar, and after checking the house, she wasn't there. So about that time, the doors rattled, so I went, went back to one of the bedrooms and hid back there in one of the bedrooms. Uh, she came in with a male visitor. They were there for maybe an hour or so. Uh, he left. I waited till wee hours in the morning uh, and then proceeded to uh, sneak into her bedroom and uh, flip the lights on with the black, or I think the bathroom lights. I just I didn't want to flip her lights on and, and she screamed and I jumped on the bed and strangled her manually. All right. Now, were you wearing any kind of disguise or mask at this time? No, no. You indicated this woman lived down the street from you. Did she know you? Uh, casually, we'd uh, walk by and wave. Uh, she she liked to work in her yard as well as I liked to work. It's just a neighborly type thing. It wasn't anything personal. I mean, just a neighbor. All right, so she was in her bed when you turned on the lights in the bathroom? Yeah, the bathroom, yeah, just, uh, so I could get some light in there. What did you do then? Oh, I manually strangled her when she started to scream. So you but, used your hands? Yes, sir. And you strangled her? Did she die? Yes. All right. What did you do then? Uh, after that, uh, since I was in the uh, sexual fantasy, I uh, went ahead and uh, stripped her and uh, probably went ahead and uh, I'm not sure if I tied her up at that point in time. But anyway, uh, she was nude and I put her on a blanket, uh, went through her purse, some personal items in the house. Uh, figured out how I was going to get her out of there. Uh, eventually uh, moved her to the trunk of the car. <sighs> Took the car over to uh, Christ Lutheran Church. Uh, this is with the older church. And uh, took some pictures of her. All right. You took some photographs of her. What kind of camera did you use? Uh, poor Lord. Did you keep those photographs? Yes. The police probably have them. All right, what happened there? Uh, that was it. I that went, uh, took, uh, she went through, I tied it, she was already dead, so I took uh, pictures of her in different forms of bondage. And that's probably what got me in trouble was the bondage thing. So anyway, that's the, probably the, the main thing. But anyway, after that, I uh, moved her back out to the car, and then uh, we went east on 53rd. All right, what occurred then? Sir? What happened then? Oh. Uh, trying to find a place to hide her, hide the body. Did you find a place? Yes. Yes, I did. Where? Uh, couldn't tell you without looking at a map, but it was on 53rd, Queen uh, Greenwich, maybe. Maybe, what's what's the other one, Queen Greenwich? Rock. Web. Queen, I think between Wed and Web and Greenwich, I found a, a ditch, a low place on the north side of the road, and hit her there. Right. You say you hit her there. Well, there were some there were some trees, some brush, and I laid that over the top of her body. All right. So you removed the body from the car, put her in the ditch, and then laid some some brush over the body. Yes, sir. All right. It was just over a decade later when another woman is found strangled in her Wichita home in September of 1986. I should warn that the following may disturb some listeners. It is claimed on or about the 16th day of September 1986 in Cedric County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed a human being, Vicki Wegerly. Can you tell me what you did here in Sedgwick County on that day that makes you believe you are guilty? As 
Uh, again, Vicki was regularly was another potential victim. I went through those different phases, uh, locked in on her, as I would call it, and uh, decided that I would try that date. I used a ruse as a uh, telephone repairman to get in their house. Uh, drove there in my own personal car uh, around lunchtime, during lunch hour, or approximately that time. It was earlier in the morning than that. And, uh, my, I actually went somewhere else and changed uh, changed my clothes, what I, what I call my uh, hit clothes. And, hit uh, clothes? Hit clothes. Uh, basically different, you know, things that I'd need to get rid of later. Not, not the same kind of clothes that I had on. I, I don't know what other better word to use it, uh, crime clothes or hit clothes. I just call them hit clothes. Uh, anyway, I walked from my car as a telephone uh, repairman. As I walked there, I donned the telephone helmet. I had a briefcase. Went to one other address just to kind of size up the house. I'd walked by it a couple times, but I wanted to check it a little bit more. Uh, as I approached it, I could hear a piano sound. And uh, went to this other door, knocked on them, and told them I was, they, we were recently working on telephone repairs in the area. And uh, they went to her went to her and knocked on the door and asked her if I could come check her telephone lines inside. Did she allow you in? Yes, she did. What happened then? I uh, went over and uh, found out where the telephone was, uh, simulated that I was checking the uh, telephone. I had a make-believe instrument, and uh, after she was looking away, I, I drew a pistol at her and asked her if she'd go back to the bedroom with me. Was this the same 357 Magnum you used? No, this, this was a different one. Different pistol. Are you asked her to go back to the bedroom with you after drawing a pistol on her? Yes, sir. What happened then? Uh, I told her, we went back to the bedroom, I told her I was going to have to tie her up. Uh, she was very upset, and I think we I used some material that was in, uh, and that, that's another thing, uh, I'm not sure, but I, I think I used the material that they had in their bedroom, and after I tied her hands, uh, she broke that and we started fighting, and we fought quite a bit, back and forth. All right, she was physically fighting you? Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. What happened then? I uh, finally got the hand on her and got a, uh, a nylon sock and started strangling her. Wrap the stocking around her neck. Yes. What happened then? Uh, I finally gained uh, gained on her and, and, and put her down, and I thought she was dead, but apparently she wasn't. But uh, after after she was down and not moving anymore, I, I rearranged her clothes a little bit and took some quick photos. I think three of them, if I remember. And then uh, after that, I there was a lot of commotion. Uh, she had mentioned something about her husband coming home, uh, so I got out of there pretty quick. The dogs were raising a lot of cane in the back. Uh, the doors and the windows were all open to the house. A lot of noise when we were fighting. So I left pretty quickly after that. Put everything in the briefcase and had her, I'd already gone through her uh, purse and got the keys to the car and used her car for my getaway car. By January of 1991, Raider was already 45 years old and growing weaker as his potential projects grew older. And so, it was convenient indeed when he spotted his last and final victim, 62-year-old Dolores Davis while she was outside her home one January afternoon. I should warn that the following may disturb some listeners. Uh, that particular day I had some commitments. I left those, uh, went to one place, changed my clothes, went to another place, uh, parked my car, finally made arrangements on my hit kit, my clothes, and then walked to that residence. Uh, after spending some time at that residence, uh, it was very cold at night, had reservations about going in. I, I had cased the place before and I really couldn't figure out how to get in and 
she was in the house, so I finally just uh, selected a, a, a concrete block and threw it through the plate glass window on the east and came on in. All right, where is this residence located? It's on Hillside, but I couldn't give you the address. I know it's probably 61, probably 62 something. Oh, 62 something. North or south? North. North Hillside. All right, so you used a concrete block to break the window? Mm hmm. Plate glass window, patio door. Mm -hmm. What happened then? Uh, noise. I just went in. Uh, she came out of the bedroom and thought that a car had hit her house. And I told her that I was, uh, I used the, the roofs of the being wanted. Uh, I was on the run, I needed food, car, warmth, warm up, and uh, and I asked her, I handcuffed her, and uh, kind of talked to her, told her that I would like to get some food, get her keys, her car, and kind of rest assured, you know, walk, talk with her a little bit, and calmed her down a little bit, and, uh, and then eventually I checked, uh, I think she was still handcuffed, I uh, went back and checked out where the car was. Uh, Stimulated getting some food, odds and ends in the house that I like I was leaving. Then went back and uh, removed her handcuffs and, uh, and then tied her up. And then, and then eventually strangled her. Or you say eventually strangled her? Well, after I tied her up, I went through some things in the room there and then, and then strangled her. Or you say you went through, were you looking for something? Mm -hmm. Well, some personal items, yes. I took some personal items from there. All right. But uh, probably if it, if, it was, if it was a control situation where I had more time, <laughs> I took something. But if it, if it was a confusion and other things, I didn't as I was trying to get out of there. All right. So in regard to the Davis matter, you went around the room, took a few personal things. What did you do then? I really had a commitment I needed to go to, so I moved. What were those commitments Raider had mentioned that night? Dennis Rader was on an overnight camping trip with his Boy Scout troops. Boys around the same age that Joseph Otero Jr. was when Rader used his Boy Scout knot tying merit badge to bind and kill his family. For the killing of Dolores Davis, Rader left a scout camp under the guise of going home for something he forgot. Instead, he went to his parents' home to change out of his scouting uniform and into his dark, hit clothes. After disposing of her body, Rader changed back into his Boy Scout uniform and slipped back into the camp. In 1984, a new investigation was launched using advances in current forensic technologies. Results showed the known murders occurred within three and a half miles from one another, leading the authorities to create a list of every white male who had lived within a quarter mile. In total at the time, the list of BTK suspects grew to 225 men, with two teams of detectives collecting blood and saliva samples. To law enforcement, however, it seemed that the 1987 investigation was no further than it was in 1974, and Dennis Rader never even made it onto the list of suspects. While BTK was stalking and murdering Marine Hedges and Dolores Davis, the Rader family continued on as normal, with Rader rising to become president at the Christ Lutheran Church and going on about his business now working with ADT Security taking his family on vacations to places like Disneyland and on camping and road trips. Yet still, no one knew who Dennis Rader really was. No one. Not one person who would come into contact with him or the unbalanced public servant could put the dual personalities together that would equal BTK. The news reports of the strangulation and murder of 28-year-old Vicki Wiggle in her home on September 16, 1986, were the last time the media, police, or public heard from BTK. Yet the fear of the home intruder who would bind torture, and kill hung heavy over the communities of Wichita, casting shadows over the happy homes. And then, in January of 2004, 
the Wichita Eagle published a story marking the 30th anniversary of the Otero killings. And just like that, the monster awoke. And BTK was back. Thanks for listening to The Unforgivables. For more information, visit theunforgivables.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review or a five-star rating. It really does help.